Welcome back to the Waiting Room Revolution. We are excited to be collaborating with the UK's Pilgrims Hospices and have friends from across the pond on the show today. Pilgrims Hospices has been providing palliative and end-of-life care for over 38 years to people of East Kent, which is about an hour or two east of London, and it's one of the largest hospice charities in the UK. And so today we are thrilled to have on the show today Dr. Andrew Thorns, who is the medical director for Pilgrims Hospices since 2015 and has been a palliative care consultant for over 20 years in East Kent, and Justine Robinson, who is the manager of therapies and well-being, and she is an occupational therapist for 23 years, joining Pilgrims Hospices in 2011. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome both to the show today. Thank you. Welcome. Andrew and just then Justine, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your role as medical director and maybe what you love about your job. Oh, thank you, and thank you so much for the invitation. I feel honoured to follow in the footsteps of some very distinguished people on your podcast, which I think are excellent. Uh, so, medical director. So, I work across Pilgrims Hospices, which, as you say, is a charitable organisation which provides inpatient uh, specialist palliative care beds and the community work. Um, but I'm also a consultant at the local hospital or hospitals. We have three hospitals in the area, so I provide input into there as well, alongside four or five other consultant colleagues now. Um, what do I love about my job? Do you know, I suppose as you go on through medicine, you realise that not everyone is going to survive, that unfortunately we all are going to die at some point. And if you can make that last bit of people's lives that little bit better, that little bit easier, then there's a huge satisfaction that my sort of need to try and save life all the time sort of I began to realise that wasn't just the way to go forward. It's a much better way just to try and um, enable people to die comfortably, peacefully, at peace with themselves. So when we achieve that, I think that's a huge success. And I, I'm really pleased when we do that. And I particularly like my job when I can see people in all the different environments they find themselves in. So I think Samuel was saying before we came on call, uh, on, on the call about being in people's homes. And it's just so lovely to see people where they need to be, where they should be, uh, managing their symptoms or issues, uh, supporting their families in their homes when we can, but equally having the access to our beds so that if they need to come in, they can do so, or should they end up in one of the local hospitals, that we can catch up with them there as well and, um, uh, and try and either get them out of hospital if that's what they need to do or to make sure they're being treated appropriately there. So that breadth of service that we can offer, I love. And of course, you get to work as a team. Um, and working as a multidisciplinary team, I think is probably the most enjoyable part of this type of work. So you've got excellent colleagues around that we can work alongside, share ideas, different perspectives, and you can sort of see life from different points of view. There's probably many other reasons, but they're the first two that come into my mind as to why I enjoy my job. And Justine, what is it that you do as a manager of therapies and well-being, and maybe what do you love about your job? So I manage uh, the occupational therapy teams, the physiotherapy teams, and uh, what we call our well-being team, which are our well-being practitioners who um, run the, the most of the groups within our therapy centres, which is where patients um, come in for the day and attend groups that are suitable for them. Um, what do I love most about my job? I think I'm probably going to echo a lot of what um, Andrew's already said. It's 
the MDT working, being able to work alongside so many skilled colleagues who are enthusiastic and dedicated about what we do. Um, the honour of walking alongside someone in that last year of life, um, being able to see them in their own home, being able to really feel like we make a difference and work really holistically. I think in, in often in England, in the NHS, occupational therapists can kind of, you either get separated into mental health or physical as the main areas you work in. In hospice care, you know, you're working really holistically across all of those areas to get the best possible outcome for the patients, which is, yeah, something very special, I think. But what I wanted to ask these folks was, um, at what point in a person's illness journey do you begin to interface with them? Very good question. And one of much debate in the UK, because uh, on average, I think it's about 40, 41 days before people die. If you look at the sort of national, they did a bit of national work on this. Uh, and we sit probably slightly better than the average, but around that figure, which if you think 40, 41 days before someone dies, isn't really a lot of time to try and identify all of the life's troubles and difficulties that are built up over someone's lifetime or the family to get on board, to get people adjusted to where they are, to make plans for the future. So it's a very short period of time. However, you will also ask me, well, when is the ideal time? And, and that's always tricky to know as well, isn't it? The, the, um, the old adage is, would you be surprised if this person dies in the next year? Mm -hmm. uh, which is what the gold standards framework sort of started off with, which I think is a good thing to consider. You know, would we be surprised if that was the case? I can compare that in the US and in Canada, the average amount of time that people get palliative care is about 18 days before death. And, okay. a, and, a, and a, um, a paper, a systematic review from uh, the group in Belgium, uh, Dr. Delians, Luke Delians, he, um, they, it's actually, it showed 18 days too, you know, internationally when they pulled all the meta-analysis. So it is very late. I mean, I think 44 days is ahead of the time, but I, can I ask a question? And for either of you that this, do you think that this surprise question, this, would you be surprised? I know, I, you know, Joanne Lynn is one of my, my mentors it started me on this path. So I've indebted to her uh, in so many ways, but I wonder if early palliative care approach like does it need to be defined by time and it's really about the diagnosis and the needs and and how do you um you know manage those two pieces where it's about you know would you be surprised the surprise question which sort of triggers all these other things but also when you realize you know maybe people have more complex needs earlier on in their diagnosis and this awareness that there will be a progression Oh, completely. Yeah, absolutely. It should be based on needs and not time. I mean, there's a time element to it, isn't it? Because people have to recognise they're coming towards the end of their lives, but it shouldn't be based on the time. And I think the Marsden, I'm right in saying, did, a, did some work where they um, screened their palliative outpatients. Um, and they found that some of the patients with the highest needs still had very good performance status. And they weren't the ones who they would traditionally have referred on to palliative care, but actually when they asked them or took time to ask them, their, their needs were great. And a lot of their needs weren't necessarily physical needs. A lot of them could be more existential, psychological, social needs. Um, so I quite agree, it should be based on need. And something about the person's place on that journey, I, I, mean, I, I don't know what you guys think, but to me, one of the most important things we do is to get people over this sort of hump, this recognition they're dying and they can still live on the other side. Um, and for some people, that's a really difficult mountain to climb to get over this idea they might be dying. And how do they adjust to that? 
for other people it's very straightforward and simple but if you can identify those people who struggle early on perhaps those who are going to have a difficult time at some point in the future then they're the ones that would be nice to get involved with early because then we can start to work with them i don't know what you yeah. feel about that justine definitely and certainly from a well-being point of view pilgrims has tried to address that by um saying that some of our groups people can be referred into earlier because they don't necessarily have to become a full service user they can come in and have um you know the education and the information they might need about managing their breathlessness or their fatigue or just building a bit of resilience around their diagnosis and coming to terms with that and and then they can go off and don't have to be completely under the hospice for however long you know they can they can get the, what they need and then be discharged back to their primary caregivers in the community so we we're, we're looking at how we can do that and how patients can kind of weave their journey in and out with the hospice that it doesn't have to be they they come to us and then they're with us so i think i mean that might help people perhaps feel comfortable with coming to the hospice at an earlier stage um you know i'm always aware it's, it's walking through those doors takes a lot of bravery mm -hmm. and it's not just about getting practitioners to refer early it's about making it a place where patients and people feel comfortable to come to early i can appreciate for people how um complicated it is to understand you know this idea of what is palliative care who provides palliative care how do i get palliative care when do i need palliative care or i don't want palliative care like people are so confused um, by the term i know here in canada we are spending a lot of time trying to i guess separate the idea of palliative care specialty services and the philosophy of palliative care and the palliative approach to care, um, where we're trying to infuse a palliative philosophy alongside any kind of um, uh, disease management treatments, um, sort of ebbing and flowing from the time of diagnosis of something like COPD or congestive heart failure or Parkinson's or ALS or whatever illness that's non-curable, that that philosophy is woven in by all nurses and all doctors uh, from the time of diagnosis, never labeling someone palliative um, at a point in time. It's just the natural dance we do across these different um, management styles and that a palliative care team or specialty group would come in at intervals from the time of diagnosis until death when needed to consult or for special programming, et cetera, et cetera. As so many people think that um, a palliative approach or palliative care is reserved for the last year or the last 44 days or the last 18 days or only provided from specialists. What do you guys think of that over there? <laughs> this idea that it should be a philosophy or an approach to care for any of these illnesses that we know are not curable. I, I've heard you speak about that before, Sammy, and I, I, you speak very powerfully about it, and I think you're quite right. And, and I think Dame Cicely Saunders, when she started all this off in the UK, she felt the hospices wouldn't exist after a period of time. There wouldn't be a need for them because you just instilled that way of working, that approach, as you describe it. 
and, and therefore you wouldn't need these other people to do the work for you. It would, it would just be integrated in part of general healthcare. And, and I still really hope that's something that we, we might do because I think good palliative care is just good clinical care, really, mm -hmm. a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, th there's still that need, as you say, for those slightly more complex situations. Yes. Um, so I don't think we'll completely get rid of this sort of need for the expert side of things. Most of the people that I meet, uh, to be honest with you, I mean, when I first trained and graduated, I thought I was going to be this, uh, this pain and symptom specialist doing this most incredible, um, innovative kind of stuff to help people's symptoms feel better. Um, but to be honest with you, 99% of the time, uh, what people are missing is information. And I find a lot of what I do is help them um, connect the dots of what's happened to them, where they're at now and where they're going. Um, so much more uh, um, information sharing than um, you know, dabbling in people's symptoms. I mean, I do that also, but do you often have people who by the time you meet them are really feeling in the dark? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think, and I'd agree with what you say. I think a lot of this, the, the, a lot of the work I do is information. And I think in that very famous study by Timel, where they looked at lung cancer patients, mm. um, either ran, randomized to palliative care at diagnosis or usual care, I think a lot of the work they, they ended up doing was about information and listening and helping people to make decisions. And I mm -hmm. certainly think we do an awful lot of that without a doubt, especially in the hospital. You see people in the hospital beds and they're fearful mm -hmm. and they're frightened and no one's spent that, taking that time to listen. I think it was a quote from yourself that says, says something about hurry up and listen yeah. because they've been talked at so much, but no one's actually stopped to listen to their concerns, their ideas to be able to work it through. What do you think, Justine? Yes, I'd agree. You know, we still see people who because of the language we use they still don't have an understanding of what's happening to them you know Catherine Mannix talks beautifully about using the d words but I think even before that sometimes you know I've met patients who've kind of gone well I'm not sure if I do have cancer love because they told me I had a node or a nodule or a and it's like okay we really need to be careful of our language at all stages so patients have a very clear understanding and and again as Andrew says that they've been listened to because the minute someone is full of fear, they, they shut down listening, that you can't take in any more information. And sometimes they just need to get stuff out before they can take anything else in. And I think that's a big part of what we do is give people space to be able to explore that and come to terms with what's happened to them, where they are, and, and be able to really hear in perhaps a, a, a more clear language what, what's possibly coming next? I um, just came from a home visit this morning and, uh, you know, without sharing too much information, this gentleman has a pancreatic cancer and he is going to start chemotherapy and he has no idea about why he's having chemotherapy, um, what the goal of the chemotherapy is. Uh, he has really very little understanding of what stage his pancreatic cancer is at. And I just, I'm smiling and I'm being very kind and trying to be helpful. And in my mind, I'm thinking that's not informed consent. 
Mm-hmm. And, and people can argue, well, maybe they, he was told that he was overwhelmed and he just forgets. But honestly, I've been in the clinics. Um, often people are discussing treatment options and the pros and cons of treatment options without really helping people understand really um, what the goal of the treatment is and in the context of where they're at in their illness journey. So I leave every home scratching my head almost. Mm. I think one of the most important things we can open with is saying, you know, tell me what you understand about your illness. Yeah. Like I say, if you can get people over that adjustment to the fact they are going to die from this, but they can carry on living and we can show them how to carry on living, I think that's achievable. Uh, a couple of other thoughts I'd have is we, we, we have an advanced communication skills course here at the hospice. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple of times oncologists have come on and said, what I'd like to do is in a 10 minute slot is get somebody coming in expecting chemotherapy and leaving comfortable with the thought that, that they shouldn't have chemotherapy in 10 minutes. So we go through the sort of the techniques, the approaches, the the, um, uh, the Silverman, Kurtz and Draper model, which you know a lot of medical schools are using now. We sort of look at the patient listening to start with and use picking up the cues and so on. And both times they've achieved this. So in 10 minutes, the patient comes in all geared up expecting chemotherapy and leaves confident and satisfied that they shouldn't have chemotherapy. It's not the right thing for them to do. Wow. So I think there is a skills issue in there as yeah. well. I quite agree. And if we could spread those communication skills a bit further, I suspect that would help. Um, But I do also wonder if there's an innate fear of death that we all have somewhere along the line as well. Mm -hmm. And of course the patients have that, so they don't want to go near there. But if some of the professionals have that too, so they're not prepared to start going Mm -hmm. down that side of the -hmm. the roads, that road, one of the two roads you were describing, Mm -hmm. then it's never gonna move on from there, is it? If if Mm -hmm. neither of us are, Mm-hmm. are going to start talking about it that dance is going in the wrong direction it's not going in the right direction yeah i love the idea of training for advanced communication skills and it's been happening in different ways in canada and other parts of the world uh, with mixed success i think and part of the waiting room revolution was to take the ideas behind that clinician training but make it more public facing and i wonder what do you think about that i mean sort of the idea that we can coach clinicians to guide people through these conversations. So do you think we can also coach patients and families to initiate and walk through these more gentle conversations as well? It's a very good point, Sam, absolutely. And just to go back to my oncology colleagues, they weren't trying to be sort of dictatorial about this. These were patients they suspected probably wouldn't want or didn't want, but how do they explore that rather than just it becoming a routine to give it? So they, they did sort of okay. see, and, and certainly the skills that we taught them were about getting the patient to talk and seeing where they were and what's going important. But your point about um, developing patient skills, yeah, because you see it, don't you? you? We come across the patient who's just been suddenly referred to us. It's all a new diagnosis and they don't know what's going on or how to deal with these situations. Uh, and then you get the other patients who've maybe been in the system for some years and they know how it works. They know how to get hold of the consultant secretary and they know that they can uh, demand this to happen or ask for that to happen they become almost like professionals because they know how to work the system and how to ask the right questions so it has to be there doesn't it and I don't know about you Justine but I certainly talking to a number of patients who've got an appointment coming up I say well why don't you ask these questions let's think about Mm. the questions you want to ask you know if you don't get on with them but why if you ask it this way or maybe I can send an email and just start that discussion so that then when you're there the consultant is ready and knowing what you want to talk about 
So, but I, I quite agree. I, I've, I've never run a session uh, for patients or relatives about how to sort of manage their side of the consultation, but I love the idea of it. Justine, do you see that when you're doing your trainings and, and that idea of well-being, like that idea of palliative care must always sort of be just underneath the surface of well-being, I would think. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, from my own communication point of view, I've, I've done the advanced care planning. And I think the most important thing that comes from, not the advanced care planning, sorry, the advanced communication skills. And the most important skill it, you, you are taught on that is to listen and ask a question and then sit back. Mm -hmm. um, because actually what comes out of that is a, is a, is a, is a shorter, more focused session because you're allowing the, the, the person to, to focus you on what's important to them. Um, it's an interesting idea. It's a really bold idea. I like it. The idea of us perhaps training, um, yeah, training families and patients and how to do that. I think we probably do on an individual level. I think when we're talking to people, hmm. you know, as a therapist or in the wellbeing centres, I think we will often have those conversations and say, well, have you thought about this? You know, maybe if you ask or have you thought of suggesting? Because sometimes it's about, it's about the, the, the patient knowing that they're at the point of wanting to stop treatment. They don't want the chemo or the radiotherapy or, you know, whatever anymore. And, and, and often it's about helping manage those conversations with their families and their medical teams mm -hmm. and saying, well, have you thought about, you know, discussing it like this? Or So, yeah, I think, I think we probably do that on a one-to-one -one quite mm -hmm. often. This is how we ended up doing the podcast series because we were doing all these one-to-one -one type mm. interventions. Um, as you said, Justine and Andrew, arming people with the types of questions that they could go to the healthcare system and perhaps leach out more information than they had before they asked the questions. And, you know, but they don't all get to see a palliative care specialist in their home. And, you know, we know that we only really see the tip of the iceberg of the, of the people who could benefit from our skills, right? So, you know, I know you guys have listened to the podcast, but this, we got really, really frustrated with how slowly things were going, training healthcare providers as the middleman or the middle people, uh, you know, so that patients and families were insured to get the information they need. And we decided we're going rogue. We are going to be public facing. We're going to share this one-on-one -on -one stuff we're doing, Justine and Andrew, the, the types of conversations we're all very comfortable with, but we're going to deliver it right to the people um, so that they never ever have to worry about someone identifying them as needing palliative care that naturally if they do this well, they will automatically get it from the healthcare system just by being a different kind of patient and family, um, more activated, more empowered, more armed with the right stuff. Mm. I, think, I think there's something to recognize there about privilege as well. We, in, in East Kent, we serve very different socioeconomic groups and I think you know I know when I've had to navigate the, the system on behalf of someone very close to me 
one, I have a healthcare background, but also, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm white and educated and, and fairly confident about speaking my mind. But we, we also see lots of families who aren't and who, you know, have what we call over, I don't know if you have the same white coat syndrome. Mm -hmm. So when they see a doctor, they sit back and become very passive mm -hmm. because, you know, there's this, well, I don't have a, an education I you know the, this is the person who who knows everything and and it's and it's those people I'm really interested in how we empower as well mm -hmm. and how we make sure that their voices are heard in the system because we know with health outcomes they're the people who perhaps aren't getting the same service mm -hmm. it, it's so true what you say um my experience in our city, we have a mixture of socioeconomics um, statuses here, but I will say that, um, you know, I assumed that people who had higher education, who had more money, who, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, would maybe fare better when facing a progressive life limiting illness. But it hasn't always been my experience, actually. There's other ingredients that seem to, um, bubble to the top that um, almost predict whether or not people are going to fare well or not. Um, you know, some of them being, and, and I appreciate totally what you're saying, Justine, but I do find that the darndest people have someone in their life who's that go-getter, the, the organizer or the manager, or like a dog with a bone. They, <laughs> they're just that kind of assertive person. And I, when I find people like that in the person's environment, I think, oh, okay, this is going to go better than a bunch of people who are just going to let the healthcare system blow them wherever they go. Um, and so, yeah, someone who's assertive makes, makes a huge difference or just someone who naturally has that style that they, um, a curiosity or a, um, they ask a lot of questions. They won't stop until they understand something. Even if their uh, education level is lower, there's something about different personalities that fare better than others as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we meet so many different people, don't we? Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's a one size fits all, that's for sure. I think what you're saying is we have to appreciate that there's such diversity um, and uh, empowering people is gonna look different depending on you know, who you're trying to activate. <laughs> yeah, but it's not even, you know, I know some people don't like the word empower, but it is that what you said earlier about, you know, hurry up and listen. The, every person should have an understanding or uh, basic understanding or, or whatever understanding they want of what their illness is, where they are in their illness, um, what might the future look like? What are, what is the intent of the treatment? What are my options? I mean, I think I, th I would imagine medical professionals are trying to answer those questions, but it is some base, it's the connect the dots. These are base, uh, you know, very important cornerstones of what is happening. And if people get lost in that, they really, don't have a sense of how of they, they lose the control and mm. the choices, uh, the ability to make choices that are good for them. And that's irrespective of, of you know, finances and et cetera. But just a point of clarification, when we talk about um, moving these types of conversations upstream, it's not really about talking uh, 
about death and dying when someone's first diagnosed with an illness that might have a life expectancy of 10 or 15 years like dementia or five years like ALS. It's not sitting people down and saying, look, you have to know this is going to end in death. <laughs> so I just wanted to clarify that it, it's really mm -hmm. about sh us sharing with patients and families that every one of these illnesses is uniquely felt by the person, but is not the first time we've seen this illness and that people have a right to know that this illness has a pattern to it right from the get-go if they want it, that it has these milestones, these bus stops, these major decision points along the way. And um, I welcome you to ask us more about that because the people that ask more questions feel more grounded and more prepared. So it, it's infusing an early palliative approach is not about talking about death and dying unless the person wants to, right from diagnosis. It's about helping them know that there is a roadmap. One of your keys is about um, customizing your order, as you put it. So tailoring your care plan to your preferences. And I think that's the thing, is it? Because some people like to know every single bit of detail right there and then. Yeah. Plan the rest of my life for me. And for other people, it's a much more gentle journey, isn't it? Step by step, yeah. or maybe not wanting to know at all. So yeah. it's customizing, as you put it so beautifully in your keys, that, mm. uh, to that person's needs. Mm. And introducing the idea of advanced care planning at the early stage and it not being necessarily about just a death plan, but actually, yeah, being able to prepare for those changes in advance, knowing that, the, you know, the broad strokes of what this, you know, your illness is possibly going to, to do for you yeah. and, and, and having those plans in place. So, okay, so the next step might be you're not going to be able to do your stairs at home, just as an example, you know. So, mm. so, so what are the plans going to be? Let's, you know, mm. would you like to get those in place now so that we're not hitting crisis? I think, Sammy, if I was to disagree with you slightly, although every experience is individual, there are certain patterns that emerge, aren't there? There are certain things that tend to yes. happen to certain groups of people in certain ways, which I perhaps what Justine saying. So we have that knowledge, and somehow we have to use that knowledge, don't we, just to start to plan ahead. I think that's important, but quite right. It's not just about the medical need, although sometimes that sort of seems to take the, the prom prominence in those situations for some reason. Mm -hmm. It's very rare when I ask someone if they're interested in um, more information about their situation that they say, no, we're not interested. In, in fact, like I've rare, rarely has someone said no. Sometimes they get a little bit sheepish and worry what I'm going to say. Like, um, you know, tell them that they're going to burst into flames at the end or their head is going to, but like, you know, they have all these ideas that they're worried you're going to confirm for them. But yeah. aside from that, I rarely, rarely, rarely have ever met someone who has said, yeah, no, we don't want to really know. We, we don't want to know. Um, if they do say it, it's because normal, usually it's because they're scared of something. When mm. you unpack that a little bit, then they realize, um, there's some course correcting we can do to make them feel better. Yeah. And sometimes I think it's, it's, and I know I've been guilty of this in the past, probably particularly when I started in palliative care, we're going too fast. 
So, you know, we're maybe we're maybe taking them five steps down the road. And actually, this person can only do the first two or yeah. one or even half a step. And it's about working with that person and and walking alongside them at the pace that they can do that. Yeah, I love that. Mm. So not just inviting people, but actually assessing or asking them the degree to which mm. they want information and how they want it, right? Um, yeah, I agree. Sammy, do you think that's something to do with you and your communication skills? So do you think that people sort of choose the people they want to ask these questions to? And if you've got someone who you get on with, you have a bond, you have a trusting relationship with you that you feel safe with, yeah. then they're the person you're going to, yeah, I do want to explore this. Whereas there's somebody else you perhaps don't quite hit off, or you're not quite confident about them, then you're less likely to go into those more sensitive areas. Do you think that's an element of it? I think so, for sure. And I think that because I'm in their home, they probably feel even more comfortable um, aside from who I am, but just being in their own environment, they can be themselves. Um, so definitely I think the right person at the right time at the right place makes a lot mm. of sense for these conversations. I've had medical students and nurses say, you know, you know, you just took an hour to do all of this. How can you expect other people um, in their busy clinics to take so much time? Time is everyone's, um, you know, concern. And what I usually say to people is that, you know, the reason why it's taking me an hour <laughs> is because I'm meeting this person at this stage of their illness. Um, I've never met them before. There's been lots and lots of doctors and nurses involved who have perhaps been busy doing other things or uncomfortable having these conversations. So it's requiring an hour of my time right now. Um, I'd like to think if we do this well in 20 years, let's just say that people will have bits and pieces of this conversation along the entire journey so that no one person is responsible for the one hour discussion at the end. I mean, there'll always be the one hour discussions, but you, you know what I mean? Like it shouldn't be the first time they're invited into an honest, open discussion about their illness is when they meet me in their home, when they have on average a couple of months to live. Yes, quite agree. Like, Taking back to Dame Sissy Saunders and her idea that we would sort of do ourselves out of business, which maybe we still might. I mean, your work like on the podcast, Hopefully the work we're doing, the common skills stuff, maybe that might just change that culture in due course by the time we retire, Sammy. You know, I think, you know, I think there'll always be a role for us. And um, yeah. Catherine Mannix set me straight too, because uh, <laughs> I was trying <laughs> to convince her that we shouldn't exist. But uh, no, you know, I think there's always going to be a role for us um, for complex situations, complex mm -hmm. discussions, complex. But I will say 99% of what I do could be done by any well-intended and well-skilled um, doctor or nurse. Uh, there's, you know, there are some complex things we do, but for the most part, I think that, you know, it wouldn't be a far stretch to teach, you know, all OTs, PTs, nurses, doctors, social workers to learn a palliative approach. It would be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about, um, you know, some of the fundraising challenges that exist in Canada, but I, I would suspect in the UK as well. I mean, I think I read somewhere that the NHS uh, covers like 20% of, um, of the Pilgrim's Hospice's budget. So 80% of your operating budget 
which is almost 11 million pounds in a year, um, is fundraised each year by the residents. So on, in some level, it's a testament to the impact you have on, uh, on the community because they are you know, so behind you and year after year fundraising, but it must be a challenge. And how do you think about that as you're programming and, and place, you know, sort of planning ahead and trying to get staff and, and do all your services? Oh, completely, yeah. I mean, there's 750,000 people live in East Kent and they raise the 11 million pounds every year. So we are hugely indebted to them. But you're quite right, Sandy. It, it demonstrates the importance people place on this type of care, which is, which is great. And it does sort of raise that question, doesn't it? Is, is so where does the hospice charity fit? You know, we are a community provider. How do we influence the community around us? We were talking earlier a little bit about um, you know when should start people when should people start talking or thinking about these issues? So how much do we start bringing that work into the community? How much is it about us providing to the community or doing to the community? How much is it about us enabling the community to do it to themselves, to take on that responsibility themselves? Mm -hmm. And there's huge discussions and debates about that, quite rightly, because the hospice, hospices originally were a protest movement, weren't they? They, they? they originated because good care wasn't there for people, and it was a sort of alternative. This is a protest movement. So what mm -hmm. are we now doing as a social movement now? How are mm -hmm. we trying to engage with our community? So, um, and yes, so we're indebted to the people who raise the money. We're starting up a thing called a think project. So mm. we're just starting to identify people perhaps earlier, early-ish on in their journey and mm. just getting to start to think about it, not about death and dying necessarily, Sammy, as you described, but just to start thinking about the future. You know, mm. what is important to them? What, what do they need to do? What do they need to think about going forward? Are they, are they sort of engaged with their families about what's happening? What do they need to put in place? And it maybe just starts that journey, starts that discussion. So it's maybe perhaps one thing that we can start to then empower the, the community and perhaps not just those people who are poorly, but perhaps taking that out to businesses, to corporate organizations, maybe get them thinking about it as well. Because as we know, talking about dying doesn't make it happen. But if you haven't had that conversation, you haven't started engaging in that process and that journey, then of course it ends up being very difficult at certain times as well. Mm. But yeah, we're, and I suppose an advantage to us being a charity because we can then do the things that we think are important. We're not in not under sort of government control to be to, mm. to meet certain targets or do certain things in a certain way. So we quite like a certain amount of flexibility, mm. but a little bit more cash from the end for our, from our <laughs> health service would be very helpful. Just at the moment. <laughs> what do you think, Justine? Yes, I agree. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're absolutely indebted to the people of East Kent. They're, they're just outstanding in, in, you know, their creativity, how they raise money for us each year. Um, I think I remember being told once that, that it's, it's around one in seven people know someone who's been directly cared for by Pilgrim's Hospices in East Kent. Oh. So, that, so that's the kind of personal feeling that, that the people of East Kent have about then, then about our services and what we do. Um, Certainly we think, you know, we're, we're piloting it after Christmas um, to start with. It will be uh, staff running the, the, the think sessions, but the hope is that it will become expert volunteers. Uh, so eventually it will be the community running these these sessions for the community. Um, you know, we'll offer the training, but I think it, it's what we were saying. It's that idea of advanced care planning, but it being at an earlier stage, it not necessarily being about just your death plan but actually all the other things that you you can think about along the way as part of your advanced care plan 
Um, mm. and, and that's why we've called it Think, because that's all we want to, you know, we just want to drop those seeds in and, and, and hopefully something will, you know, will, will take root and we'll just help people start having those conversations. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. How can we support your work? Donate, right? <laughs> Yeah, as, as Bob Geldof would have said, give us your money. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, sharing everything we do when you see us on social media, um, you know, supporting us that way is always really helpful too. Um, you know, we've, as I say, we're very lucky in the way that people donate and get involved and and volunteer, you know, volunteers are the lifeblood of the hospice and, and we wouldn't be able to run without them. And certainly mm-hmm. over COVID when we couldn't have volunteers in, in the building because we needed to stop footfall. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we, we really felt the, the lack of them because they're such a joy to have around for us as well. Mm-hmm. And it's, collaborate, yeah. I'd throw into that as well, Sam, as well, because, you know, you've, you've got some great ideas from what you've developed here. We've got good ideas. The mm-hmm. fact we can come up come together internationally and share those good ideas which all helps if the service can get better that really helps if we can evaluate the think project and it's a really good idea and it works and it changes the way people approach things and we share that with other people then that's good so collaborate I think is the other one I'd have yeah Mm -hmm. Justine and Andrew I really want to thank you both for joining us today and and uh, being on our podcast. And it was such a pleasure to connect and I hope that we can continue to collaborate and, and, uh, and contribute to your amazing work. Mm-hmm. We can't wait to learn from you guys. You guys are always, yeah. it seems like you're always at least 10 steps ahead of us. So mm. <laughs> do share. I'm sure you're catching well, up you. very quickly, Sammy, if that's the case. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been thank great you. to be here today. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me, Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.